Uh, we're going to start today's message with story time. Do you all like story time? Well, it really doesn't matter because I'm going to tell a story. We're going to start today with story time. The, the, this story is, is one of my favorites. It's been years since I've shared it. It's by Leo Tol Tolstoy, and it's called How Much Land Does a Man Need? A peasant named Pahom overhears his wife and sister-in-law arguing about the relative merits of town life versus peasant farm life, and he's listening in, and he thinks to himself, well, farm life is better, but our problem out here in the farm world is that we just don't have enough land. We, we don't have enough land, and, and we can't produce enough crops to, in order to better ourselves. If I had plenty of land, he says to himself, I wouldn't fear the devil himself. Well, unbeknownst to him, Satan is listening, and he begins his plan. Pahom becomes very possessive of his land, and this causes arguments to erupt between him and his neighbors. They become so enraged at Pahom that they actually threaten to burn his buildings down. So he decides that he can fix everything if he just moves to a larger area of land where he would be able to grow more crops, and he does, and he actually begins to amass something of a small fortune, but he has to grow his crops on rented land, and that irritates him. So this prompts him to begin to invest his growing fortune in the buying and selling of a lot of really good and fertile land, and this grows his fortune even more. Yet in his heart, because remember Satan had overheard all this, it's still not enough. And then he hears of some very simple folks who have all kinds of land and are willing to sell it according to some pretty agreeable terms. Bahom decides that he's going to do his best to buy as much of his land at the best price possible, and so he goes to negotiate. And when he arrives, he is shocked to hear their unusual offer. They tell him, for the sum of a thousand rubles, I got no idea, I'm not a ruble guy, it doesn't sound like a lot, but they say for for a sum of a thousand rubles, they will allow him to begin walking at daybreak around the land that he wants, wants to own and to drop spades in the ground as he goes. And if he is able to return to the starting point by sunset, he will be able to keep all of the land that he had circled. But if he's unable to return, he loses the money and he doesn't get the land. Well, he's delighted about this. He says, I can do that. I'm in great shape. I'm a farmer. And so I'll be able to walk around a, a lot of land, and I'll have all the land that I will ever need. So at daybreak, he is off, and he stays out late, marking out land until just before sunset. And then he realizes, man, I'm a long way from the starting line. I'm going to have to really walk fast to get back. And so he begins to walk very fast. And then he notices that the, the sun is dropping lower on the horizon. And he says, well, I, I have to start running. And so he begins to run as fast as he can. And he gets there right as the sun sets. And the sellers cheer. They applaud him for being able to get all of that land together. And he's saying, thank you. Thank you very much. Bam. Falls over dead. His servant buries him in an ordinary grave about six feet long. 
Now, remember, the name of the story is, How Much Land Does a Man Need? And Tolstoy's last line is this, Six feet from his head to his heels was all the land Pahome needed. There's a lot there to think about. And today we're going to use that to help us think about the idea of church generosity. Now, don't panic. I'm not talking about personal generosity, so you can let go of your wallet and your purses, okay? We're not going to do that this morning. We're talking about church generosity. And we'll do so by asking the question, how much people, resources, money does a church need? The church culture of my lifetime, especially the church culture of my lifetime, has answered the question, how much does a church need with the answer more than we have right now? So, we have, at this point in American history, the largest churches in American history, and also the most impotent church in American history. So, what gives? Well, I think that the answer is that many churches have more than they really need. Too many churches have embraced the race to expand their kingdom and to encircle as much of a community as possible, but they've ended up killing their broader influence because the marching orders that we are given as a church is not to build our kingdom, but is instead to expand his. So in this third of our four messages on our core values called DNA, I'm going to try to show you how Blue Valley wrestles with the question, how much does a church need? And to show that we believe that God is calling us as a church to give away as much as we can to be faithful in growing, not our kingdom, but growing the kingdom of God. And we'll do that by looking at 2 Corinthians chapter, or 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 16. So why don't you open to 2 Corinthians 9 in your copy of God's Word. In this passage, we're going to see a man named Paul challenge the church at Corinth to give generously to the multiplication of God's grace and glory. In this section, Paul's been talking to the Corinthian church on the subject of generosity because he is busy collecting an offering from other churches to carry back to the needy Christians at the church in Jerusalem. They had been ostracized from society because of their faith, unable to even hold jobs, and they were in desperate straits. And so he's collected monies from other churches to take to them, and he wants the Corinthian church to participate. As a matter of fact, he's asked the Corinthian church to participate before, and they had agreed, but the church had gotten sidetracked, and they had not followed through on their commitment. So he spends all of 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9 talking uh, to the church about stepping up their collective generosity, and he wraps up everything that he's been saying when he gets to verse 6 of chapter 9 and conveys for us two principles of generosity that drive everything the New Testament teaches on that subject. If you would please look at verse 6 with me. The point is this, 
Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Two principles exist in those verses. The first is built on what we see in the natural order of things. A farmer could choose to eat all that he raises, or he could choose to give away, as it were, to the soil some of what he has raised in order to gain an even larger harvest. The point being, the point that, that Paul is making is that the more a church gives, the greater the harvest for the kingdom of God. Now, the second principle, to quote one author, is that God doesn't prize the size of the gift, but the giver's sincerity. He says, don't give reluctantly. He prizes the, the spontaneity of the giver. Don't do this under compulsion because you feel required to. And he prizes the joyful willingness of the giver. He loves a cheerful giver. Putting those two principles together really frames what the New Testament teaches on generosity. The bottom line is that everything, everything belongs to God. He gives us what we need and even allows us to enjoy some of what is his, but he expects us to be generous with what he gives us. And in response, if we'll do those things, if the church will do those things, the church can expect four things to happen. The first is that that church can expect God's continuing generosity to them. Look at verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. In other words, God is going to grace you with his generosity so that you can continue to do the work that God has called you to do right there in Corinth. He continues, as it is written, he is distributed freely. He's even given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increased the harvest of your righteousness. He's saying God, church, will continue to be generous to you, but not in the sense that the Corinthian church was going to become wealthy. I'm sorry, Joel Osteen and every hack that has a television show that calls themselves a preacher. His generosity will manifest itself in that church's ability to be spontaneously generous and then he will in turn supernaturally bless them to be able to do the work that God has called them to do. So it's kind of a flywheel kind of effect. They give, God gives. They're more successful. They have more. They give, God gives. And they continue to be able to do the work God has called them to. So our generosity as a church, Paul is teaching this, means that we can expect God's continuing generosity. And then this, look at verse 11. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but also is overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. What does that mean? He says generosity results in multiplied thanks to God as the need that is met by our generosity causes the recipients to give thanks to God for their need being met by God through the generosity of the church. We've seen this happen already at Blue Valley. 
You know, if you're a part of our church family, that we gave about $80,000 for the establishment of a new church plant in northeastern Brazil. When we hear back from those who are benefiting from that gift, they give thanks to God for his use of Blue Valley in providing the funds for a church to be established in that community. That's exactly what Paul is talking about in verses 11 and 12. So as a result of our generosity, we can expect God's continuing generosity to us. We can cause, uh, expect to see God causing the recipients to give thanks to God for their generosity, uh, for the generosity that we have shown, and so he is therefore praised. And then we see this. Look at verse 13. By their approval of this service... They will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. He's saying that because a church is generous and meeting these needs beyond just what they can see and touch themselves, God is giving glory as to the existence of his son's salvation and it being real. The question, why would a church in secular pagan Corinth have any concern at all for what's happening to Christians living in Jerusalem? Why do they care? The reason they care is because the gospel of Jesus has made the Jews in Jerusalem who have responded to Christ and the pagans in Corinth who have responded to Christ brothers and sisters. It demonstrates that there is something that ties us together that is beyond what the eye can see. God is getting glory as to the reality of a salvation when we give as a church. And then he tells us to expect one more thing. Look at verse 14 and 15. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Paul is saying as the result of a church's generosity, that church can expect that those whose needs have been met will pray for the church that has given to them, asking God to favor that church for the favor that they have shown them in their generosity. So, Christians in northeastern Brazil are praying for God's blessings on a church in Overland Park, Kansas. Isn't that cool? That's how it works. This is what he says. Now, I know we've covered a lot very quickly, but here's the summary. Everything belongs to God. He gives us what we need and even allows us to enjoy some of what is his. But he expects us to be generous with what he has given us. And in response we can expect God's continuing generosity to us, for God to be thanked by the recipients of our generosity, for God to be glorified by the evidence of salvation that our generosity provides, and for our needs to be prayed for by those whose needs our generosity met. Now, obviously, obviously, there are personal applications for this in our personal decisions about generosity. I can't tell you the last time that we preached a sermon on the subject of personal generosity. 
on the importance of regularly providing generous and sacrificial offerings first to the church and its ministries and then to uh, other Christian ministries and other Christians in need. Frankly, we probably need to do that more. One of the things that we would show you, if I, I've done it before, I've shown people. People say, oh, don't preach on money. But every time I do, the next week's offering's fantastic. So you're giving me what they call negative reinforcement when you do that. But we haven't preached on that subject in a long time and probably need to do more than what we do. But this entire passage is on a subject that is never addressed. In fact, I've preached from this passage countless times, not countless times, but a lot of times in the years that I've been a pastor, and I've never approached it from the standpoint from which it is written. This passage is about a church's collective generosity about a church giving away, a church giving away what God has given them to expand his kingdom. And as a church, Blue Valley has always done this financially. In the 15 years that I've been lead pastor here, I did very quick math and was able to come up with the figure about $3 million dollars has been given away by Blue Valley over the last 15 years to ministry opportunities outside of our church, just from our budget, and then even more than that through outside special gifts. Now, that number may be unusual just because of the size of our church, but it's not unusual for churches to be generous with their funds. Most churches give away a significant portion of their offerings to ministry outside of their own existing ministry footprint because most churches understand that a local church should be generous with their finances and not keep everything that comes in. But at Blue Valley, we have continued to ask how much should a church have? And as a result, we value two things that are in fact unusual, especially out here in suburbia for churches. And I want to share those values with you right now. These next few minutes may explain for you why you perceive Blue Valley to be weird beyond just the lead pastor. Because the local church should be a generous church, we value ministry expansion through multiple campuses and church plants rather than ministry expansion at a single location. That'll be up there for a while if you want to write it down, but you can also find this by going to our website, About Us, Mission, Vision, Values. They're all listed there. The most momentous 15 minutes of my first 15 years as lead pastor happened after a Monday staff meeting in the fall of 2012. We had expanded our facilities in uh, 2009 by buying the annex, by expanding this worship center by 250 seats. By the way, the first time we ever worshipped in this building as it's currently configured was Christmas Eve 2009. I don't know if you remember it. It was a ridiculous blizzard that night. It was fantastic. But we, we, after doing that, we remodeled existing space, really remodeled everything we had. And three years later, 2012, we were still paying that off, and we were almost out of space again. 
And in staff meeting, we had been brainstorming what to do. And the conversation continued as the three other pastors besides myself that we had at the time, Pastor John still here, Pastor David, Pastor of Operations Outreach still here, Pastor Darren Ray, who's now a lead pastor in New England, followed me into my office because they wanted to continue the conversation. Well, I was done with them. I, you know, all of the words, I was tired of listening to them, so I wouldn't let anybody sit down. You know, you know how that goes. We stood around my desk. And for 15 minutes standing around my desk, the conversation moved from what should we build next to should we build at all? Those 15 minutes are the headwaters of the transformation of our church from a let's gather everyone and everything we can and become Johnson County's newest megachurch to the mentality that characterizes our church today. One that seeks to give away people, which we've done recently in sending people to establish Overflow Church in Martin City, and resources, which we've done through the giving of money to Compassion International to plant the church in northeastern Brazil, and which we do in giving money to Multiply Church in West Des Moines, Iowa, and other church opportunities that present themselves, which we've done to expand God's kingdom and not the Blue Valley brand. Now, I get that the journey hasn't been an easy one. If you've been here that entire time, you know, I know. Our entire vocational staff has had to unlearn everything that we were trained to know about church. Because what we were trained to know about church is that you get everybody and everything you can in one place and become famous. And frankly, we didn't know what we were doing in the early days of doing this. It took us a long time. And um, maybe the rank and file doesn't know this, but we experienced what could only be characterized as a series of satanic attacks that took place as we sought to become this kind of, of ministry. And then, I don't know if you've heard of it, COVID happened, disrupted us a little bit. But I can say honestly that we are now as spiritually healthy as a church as we have ever been. We've got more people involved in real discipleship, not a 6 o'clock Sunday class in the evening that goes for 13 weeks. I'm not talking about that. People who are engaged in real discipleship, like we talked about last week, which if you missed, go back and listen to that one. Real discipleship. We've got more people involved in that than we have ever had, and those numbers are growing. We are within shouting distance of being as healthy financially as we have ever been as we get closer and closer to retiring the debt and freeing up six figures of money annually to be able to give away. And, and we've got more people focused, joining not just the, the, the staff, but the elders and the deacons, more people focused on this idea of being a church that expands not its brand, but expands outward beyond a central location. And all of that bodes well for the future. But it's not a future that tries to hoard people and resources. It will see our church, however many campuses that it will be, asking always the question, how much does Blue Valley need? And then giving away the rest. 
And that's a future that I think will outshine anything that we could have possibly accomplished making 151st and Antioch the newest outpost on megachurch world. I believe it's a future that will result in thousands reached around the region, around the country, and around the world. And just because we can't count them here on a Sunday morning doesn't mean we haven't been faithful to what God has called us to do. I believe that the last 10 years of my vocational ministry life will be more exciting than the previous 36 because Blue Valley believes the local church should be a generous church and thus we will value ministry expansion through multiple campuses and church plants rather than ministry expansion at a single location. And then in closing, we also value engaging the spiritual and physical needs in our church and community through ministries that we establish internally and working with local ministry partners externally. Again, that'll be up there for a little bit, but you can find it on the website about us, Mission Vision Values. In other words, our church lives out in the 21st century exactly what Paul is calling the Corinthian church to practice in the first century, to be active in meeting the physical needs that exist around them. Here's how we do that. At least part of how we do that. Apart from meeting the spiritual needs of our church family through the normal course of ministry, we meet the physical needs of our church family through a group of people established precisely for that purpose, men called deacons. Their primary job is to meet the needs of the church family, and one of the primary ways they do this is through a fund that they oversee called the 245 Fund. It's based on Acts 2.45, which says, And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any have need. The fund itself is a line item in our budget. It hasn't always been that way. When the fund got started, it started because as a church in 2009, we were experiencing something that other churches were not experiencing. We were experiencing excess in funds coming in. Our church had grown so rapidly in those few years that more money was coming in than we had budgeted for. That never happens in church life, and it especially was not happening in churches in 2009 because of the financial crisis. And we began to think, you know, that excess needs to be used for God's glory and for his benefit. How could we do that? So what we did is we decided in March of 2009 that we would dedicate one offering that month. It was a five-Sunday month. We would dedicate one offering that month and set it aside to meet the needs of our people, some of whom were going through significant financial crisis because of uh, the situation our country found itself to be in at that time. And when that money dwindled, we would add more to it. And then finally we moved it to the budget. Now, it is a, a, a ministry that since its inception in 2009 has been able to distribute, and I want to make sure you hear this, has been able to distribute to church families in need since March of 2009, as of last month, $507,000. Because of 245, there has only been one family in our church foreclosed upon since 2009 that we know of, and the only reason that happened is because that family didn't raise their hand for help until it was too late for us to intervene. We need to thank God for our deacons in this ministry 
and, and how they meet the needs of our church family. But there are needs outside of our church, so what do we do? Well, there are multiple things we do. We have something called the Benevolence Fund, which, again, is overseen by our deacons and which is funded with an offering we collect after every communion service to meet the needs of those who come to us from our community seeking financial assistance. We also partner at Pastor David's direction with ministry partners in our community like advice and aid to minister to women and their partners who are experiencing a crisis pregnancy, encouraging them to keep their child and raise that child. And we partner with Mission Southside, which ministers to the shocking shockingly large number of those who are under-resourced in Johnson County. And our newest ministry partner is Hope is Alive, which is a Christ-based addiction recovery program. We give money out on a regular basis to these ministries to be able to have them meet needs in our community. So we value generosity with both our resources inside and outside of the church as we learned in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 that we should do because a local church should be a generous church. Now look, Blue Valley is not a perfect church by any stretch of the imagination. I have it on good authority that the lead pastor of Blue Valley is not a perfect person. I also have it on good authority that none of you are perfect people. So we're not a perfect church. I know that. You know that. We all know that. But there's a lot here that is cause for celebration. And that should humble us in that we get to play a part. Do you realize 44 years ago today, Blue Valley was constituted as a church? 44 years ago today. And what it's become and what it's been able to do is just something that should cause us to give glory to God. And one of the biggest causes for celebration and humility is how generous our church is. We give money away. Most churches do that. We give people away. Only insane churches do that. Because we're always asking how much does a church need? But obviously our generosity corporately depends entirely upon our generosity as individual family members. And so this is where the, the personal application comes in. You've heard me say this before. We can never become here what we are not as individuals. So if we are not personally generous, we cannot be corporately generous. So let me just challenge you in this way. If you're not giving, I encourage you to start giving. It's important for you to know we have no idea who's giving and who's giving how much. I don't know. None of our staff knows. None of the elders know. We are removed from that process entirely. So if you're, if you're one of those who isn't giving, I'm, I'm encouraging completely blind for you to begin giving. If you are someone who's giving, again, we don't know who is and who isn't. But if you are giving, we just want to encourage you to continue to do that because doing that allows us to be able to do what God is calling us to. And if you are giving, we encourage you to think about giving more to our budget because there's always a need there, to the Multiply 2028 campaign to see us re remove our debt entirely, and we're, um, we're about to hit the home stretch. We believe by the end of the year we'll be at the home stretch, the last million to pay off. 
And if we do that, we're going to free up about $252,000 a year in our budget that would allow us to be able to say yes a lot to ministry opportunities. You can give there or you can give to one of the other things that the Lord calls us to, but those are the two primary ways that you can do it. And so I ask you to do that so that we can continue to be a church that both values and practices generosity. Let's pray.